0: Good morning. This, oh wow, you guys are all awake. Beautiful. Um, We're going to start this morning in Matthew 1, 1, right at the beginning. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of... Rehoboam. Is it feeling like Catholic Mass to anybody yet? Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abyud, I'll say, because I'm not entirely sure. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achan. "'Achim was the father of Eliud. "'Eliud was the father of Eleazar. "'Eleazar was the father of Matin. "'Matin was the father of Jacob. "'Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. "'Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. "'All those listed above include 14 generations "'from Abraham to David, "'14 from David to the Babylonian exile, "'and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah, "'the birth of Jesus the Messiah. "'This is how Jesus the Messiah was born.'" How many people are still awake? (laughs) When we do the Christmas story, we tend to start right off in verse 18. This is how Jesus was born. And we skip over the genealogy entirely. And doing this on stage, I understand why. Because that was pretty painful this is one of the most neglected passages in all of Matthew if not the New Testament if not the Bible as a whole and I could sense the feeling that's in the room right now I know that most of the room is putting out a general feeling of is he really going to go through with all of this or did he not study up on how to pronounce those names I did I didn't memorize some of them I'm sorry (laughs) a little on the difficult side this section of scripture is rarely read and even more rarely taught. And I think people rarely read it because it's so daunting in its scope. I mean, just look at some of these names. Perez, Uzziah, Hezron, Boaz, Ahaz, Azor, Zadok, Zerubbabel, Z, 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 Z. I'm willing to bet that there is no novel written that uses as many Zs as the genealogy of Jesus Christ let alone in a small section like this. But it was my hope this morning that if I read through this, um, those of you who have skipped it in the past actually heard this for the first time. Um, It's also my hope that any of you that have ever done public speaking before, that maybe you were saying a silent prayer for me in that moment, understanding that I was straining my way through it. And every time I strain my way through it, I ask myself this question, why on earth would Matthew begin his gospel with that? As you were probably asking yourselves, why on earth would he begin a sermon like that? Why would Matthew begin his gospel in that way? I mean, Mark, if you go over to Mark, Mark gets right down to business. Mark 1.1 says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Boom! Off to the races. And that's it. We jump right into the story. John tries to be a little more poetic. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's deep. Star Wars probably stole stuff from that. <laughs> Luke sounds very official, like it could be a detective novel or an episode of Law & Order. Many, of pe- many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. <laughs> Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. <laughs> But Matthew, I mean, come on, man. This is like a huge stretch going through the entire genealogy of Jesus. It really does seem out of place among the others, but it's actually really not. Each of them have different introductions, and each of them are making clear that you can't understand the importance or the beauty of the arrival of Jesus unless you understand the big picture, And Matthew gives us a picture here that no other gospel gives us. You want to know why the genealogy matters? If you go back to verse one of Matthew, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. From that opening statement, we expect this family tree to help us understand not only the ancestry or the past of Jesus, but also his identity and his mission. Jesus is called the son of both David and Abraham. By calling Jesus the son of Abraham, the author is connecting Jesus to the father of the people of Israel. Very important, yes? Matthew is bringing the reader's attention back to the promise of God, uh, God's plan to rescue the world. He wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to all of humanity. And how is he going to do that? With the next one, we jump to David. David. Son of David is is a term that the author of Matthew is very fond of. Verse 1 is the first of 10 appearances in Matthew that says son of David. And it draws our attention to the royal line of King David. If Abraham's name pointed to a belonging among the people of Israel, David's name tells us that Jesus was royalty. Now there are names on this list that are less than noble. Names that are jarring to see next to the likes of Abraham and David. There's other names that Matthew could have highlighted, but instead he mentions uh, Canaanites, uh, Moabite women, known sinners. And when I say known sinners, I know that we all sin, but I mean their reputation was sinning. They were known sinners. People would see them and say, there's a sinner. Not something that you often do when you're walking down the street. Um, These were people that would no doubt be associated with Israel's covenant failure. And he does that on purpose because he wants his readers to see that God uses all types of people to move his plans forward. And as we know, when Jesus grows into a man, he continues to invite all sorts of people into his plan, all sorts of sinners, all sorts of outsiders all sorts of misfits to take part in his plan and to be part of his family. What we see in this genealogy is that he's the one that the prophets talked about and the one that psalmists sang about. He will be the king of Israel who blesses not just Israel, but the nations of the entire world, especially the outsiders, the rejected, the misfits. So when we read the genealogy in Matthew we see the royal lineage of Jesus. He's the one who would bring the blessing of Abraham to the entire world. He's the royal son of David, the royal son that all of Israel has been waiting for for all of this time. The royal son that all of Israel has been waiting for. If that statement, that that is the truest statement that could be spoken in Scripture. And it is, you can understand why Scripture describes King Herod later as deeply disturbed when he finds out about the birth of Jesus. But that's something that we're going to cover on Boxing Day. I'm not even going to touch that right now. Boxing Day is December 26th, for anyone that's not familiar with the British term. Um, So yes, I I, I always get confused as to why we gloss over the genealogy. Um, It's not exciting, but it's the beginning of the greatest story ever told. And when you dig into it, you understand the real meaning and the real importance behind it. It doesn't need to be more exciting. It's the story of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The most important person, the most significant person in the history of the world, no one has made an impact the way that Jesus has. Any attempt to make that more exciting than it already is will fail. We have our backstory, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the royal son, all of Israel has been waiting for. That's who he is. And then we go on in Matthew 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. That is how you start off a gospel. That is absolutely outstanding. That is how you begin the greatest story ever told. Let's keep going. Second half of 18. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin... She became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a little context for that. We know from Bible scholars that Mary was young, like a teenager, okay? Maybe middle school or high school age. Um, So, ladies in the room, put yourself back into that period of your life. And really sit in it for a moment. That awkward stage of life. Just enjoy it for a second. The braces. Uh, Just the general awkwardness that you put out into the world, okay? Let's just remember what 13, 14 years old was like for a moment, okay? So show of hands, now that you're sitting in that moment, how many of you were ready to raise God? (laughs) I'll take that as no one. Fair enough. And these two, they were engaged to be married. The day was coming soon. They could have chosen the date. Invitations could have gone out already. Um, For those of you that are married or getting married, just try to remember what that excitement is like. This is one of the most important days of your life, right? One of the most memorable days of your life. You're definitely going to remember what it was like leading up to that. And the Bible highlights here before they came together. So the marriage hasn't taken place. Therefore, the marriage hasn't been consummated. It's a lesson in how to do things right in a relationship. Single men are less excited than I thought they'd be. Uh, Matthew 1.19, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to dis- disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. So think about this. Joseph, try to imagine it. Joseph, who has saved himself for marriage, is about to wed someone who is pregnant who he was under the impression she had saved herself as well. A teenager, poor, he grew up in a small town. They both grew up in this town. They grew up knowing each other. They're betrothed to one another. They're not married. She's pregnant. So men in the room, put yourself in his position. Married or single, put yourself in his position. You're saving yourself for your wife. You thought... She was doing the same thing. You two probably grew up together going to, going to uh, the synagogue together, worshiping God together. You're godly people. Then one day she says to you, we we're pregnant. And you're probably thinking to yourself, what's this wee crap? <laughs> what's this we business? Try to give it some actual life and think about what could have possibly been going through his mind. If you have ever been cheated on before, for anyone in the room that has ever been cheated on before, it is emotional turmoil. It's devastation. All signs point to her betraying you, betraying your heart, betraying your trust, and not just in an emotional way, but in a very, very public way. You cannot hide a pregnancy when you go out. Though my wife tried really hard when we had our second kid. She watches a lot of 90s sitcoms, so she knows all about like big purses and angles so that no one can actually see the belly. And I'm saying that she made it to seven months before someone here at church noticed. So, bravo. Um, so Joseph, through all of his emotional issues at this point, he thinks about her. He doesn't want to disgrace her. He feels like she's betrayed him, and given how public this has become, he still doesn't want to humiliate her any further than she'll already be humiliated. So he decided to quietly and without attention from anyone in town break off the engagement. And it's right after he considered it that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And did anyone catch this again? Joseph, son of David. There it is again. And this is why the genealogy is important. The angel appears and tells Joseph that what's taken place here was not a betrayal, it was just a miracle, a miracle of God. So don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Now, this changes everything. Joseph is an honorable man. He doesn't talk a lot, what man does. But he shows up in a lot of ways. And if Mary didn't betray him, and this is a miracle of God, then he should stay with her. The only issue with staying with her is his, suddenly his public perception, how people would see him. People talk. People will say things about how he's raising another man's kid. His reputation will go from an honorable man to a pushover overnight who clearly didn't stand up for himself. So what does Joseph do? He does the honorable thing and he gives his reputation over to God. He hands his reputation to God. He marries a single mom. He adopts Jesus and becomes his father. And we all know the story from there. He says, God, you're in control of things. I give you my reputation. And what's the outcome? He gets a great wife in Mary. He gets a great son in Jesus, a great son in like probably the best son ever in Jesus. You know what I mean? And we're here talking about how honorable this man is all this time later. Right? And of course, they had a bunch of other kids along the way. Story continues in 121. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We're all sinners, and as a result, we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. Our religion will not save us. Our works will not save us. Our morals will not save us. But we still need to be saved. Joseph is told to give his son the name Jesus. And then in verse 22... All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, that's in quotes there, if you pay attention. That's because it was mentioned before in Scripture. There are prophecies all throughout Scripture they're predictions that are revealed to or by God to men about specific instances that are going to take place in the future. And about a quarter away, or a quarter of the Old Testament, is prophetic. And this message that we read, it comes right from Isaiah. Isaiah seven fourteen says, "All right, then, the Lord Himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel." which means God is with us, word for word. And it was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. We just spent a little time talking about how our religion won't save us, our works won't save us, only Jesus does that. But it's not about us, it's about him. He's what separates us from other religions. We've covered that many times in here, or at least I have. I know that I I somehow find a way to speak about it every time that I'm up here. He's what separates us from other religions. We don't do so well so that we can achieve something great up there. That's not what it's about. It's about him coming down here and meeting us here in our failure, in our sin, meeting us here and saving us here. It's about him. It's not about us at all. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. So Joseph woke up, and Joseph obeyed. That is something that we can all learn a lesson from, is to just wake up, obey. Two best ways to start the day. Their marriage wasn't consummated until after Jesus was born. And while all of this was going on, Caesar, you guys all know Caesar, right? From history. I got to know. Let me, let me give a little breakdown. Okay. Uh, transferred Rome from a republic to an empire. One of the greatest military commanders in history. Uh, he's got like a mediocre salad named after him. I'm not sure if you've ever had it before. Uh, so Caesar, Yeah. He demanded a census of the entire Roman Empire. So Joseph and Mary had to travel 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to take part in it. While Mary was very, very pregnant, 70 miles by foot or on the back of a donkey, maybe alternating between the two. Give that a little context and think about 70 miles yourself. And women in the room, go back to when you were pregnant, 70 miles. Can you even imagine it? I can actually imagine it with very little difficulty because my wife was just pregnant. Uh, And I remember nine months of her being pregnant, right around the nine-month mark, having to pull my car uh, past the driveway right up to the front door, and at an angle so that the car was easier for her to get in. But 70 miles by foot, it makes things a little more difficult. I cannot imagine talking to my nine-month pregnant wife and saying, hey, babe, I planned a vacation for us, okay? (laughs) I know you're a travel agent and everything, but this is going to be really fun, okay? First off, we're going to Philly, I know that that's a hot spot around here. It's like 70 miles away. Uh, I did not work out transportation. Um, We've got this donkey. Uh, You can hop on this donkey. Uh, Might have to walk because, I mean, the donkey's going to get tired too. Okay? So you might have to walk some of it, ride on the donkey for some of it. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, plus the government is asking us to do something, so we kind of have to go there. So a little less of a vacation and more something important. There's no way that it would ever happen. But they got there. While they were there, Mary went into labor. And we all know the rest of the story. There was no guest rooms that she could stay in. After all, the city was packed. There was a census that was going on there at that point in time. They were not the only two coming in from out of town to be a part of it. And baby Jesus was born under questionable circumstances to his teenage parents. He was born alongside straw and animals and animal refuse that's just known in a stable. He was placed in a manger, which is a really nice word that we put on it at Christmas time, it was a feeding trough. He was born in a stable next to smelly animals and their refuse and lots of straw and put in a feeding trough because there was nothing else to put him in. This is the context that we should be thinking about when we think about the Christmas story. The king of kings was born among the lowest of lows. We don't talk about that that much. Why not? God's humility coming down to be among us. And he was born in the lowest of the low. Because how could royalty possibly identify with the lowest of the low unless royalty had been there for themselves? I'm going to leave you with this. There's a book that uh, my wife reads to our children every year. It's called The Greatest Christmas Pageant Ever. Has anyone ever read it before? Fantastic book. Uh, A lot of fun for kids. Um, She reads it every year. It's about six outcast, misfit kids. Do you see the connection here so far? Six outcast, misfit kids whose reputations are just that. They get tricked into going to Sunday school because they're giving out pizza. Youth Ministry 101. Okay? Okay? And while they're there, they they find out about the Sunday school pageant that happens every year, and they get roped into being a part of it. Not just being a part of it, but starring in it. But they immediately have questions and complaints about this. They hear the story just like everyone else hears the story, but they hear it from the perspective that we all live in, this perspective of reality. And they're listening to it, and they're like, wait a minute. There was a nine-month pregnant woman asking for a place to stay, and people turned her away? That's disgusting. They got hung up on those harsher details. One of the kids was outraged because they put the baby in a food box. At one point when they're actually doing the play, one of the girls refuses to put Jesus in the feeding trough and holds him instead and in an awkward moment smacks the baby twice on the back to burp the baby and the crowd gasped because that had never happened in the Christmas pageant before but Jesus was a real baby and that was probably something that really happened It's not a detail that we read in Scripture, but this is how it's worded in the book. She thumped the baby on its back twice, hard. There was a gasp. It didn't seem right to burp the baby Jesus. But that was the whole point of Jesus. He was a real person, and he started out as a real baby. Somehow, every wrong thing that these children did in the pageant seemed right because it was a real story, and they made it real. And when we talk about Mary and everything that Mary went through as a teenager and Joseph and everything that Joseph must have imagined to himself as a teenager and all of that turmoil and how difficult it must have been to make that 70-mile track and all of the details of childbirth that we don't discuss when it comes to the nativity and all of these different aspects that are just difficult for us to imagine that we don't usually imagine on Christmas that makes everything just feel so hopeless. It's in all of that that we actually find our hope. Because it's at the end of that story that Jesus is born. And what more hope do we need than him? The son of Abraham, the son of David, born to peasants, teenage peasants, who were tasked with raising the son of God God who is clearly using ordinary people like you and me in that instance. Jesus' birth and Jesus' life fulfilled prophecies. He has been the plan to rescue the world from the beginning. Where we as people have failed on our own, it is him and in him that we find our victory. What more hope could we possibly need than that? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, this time that we have together this morning, just to just to talk about what really happened that day, and to go over some of the details that we probably don't think about. Um, because when we go over those details, we realize that you were very human much more human than, uh, than we ever consider, Lord. Um, I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for the hope that you give us all on this holiday, Lord. I pray that as we leave here, we just keep that in mind. And thank you for this season. Amen.